built, uh, you know, rockets and, and things that went into space before NASA did. So I'm simply saying with time, there, there, is, there is technical expertise and there are smart people in, in Russia. So I'm not so down on the long-term capabilities uh, of fixing this in Russia. Uh, I'm very much down on this, Lukas. This is where I beg to differ and, uh, for a long, long, uh, um, say, backstory, which I could provide you with, but we don't have the time for it today. So I shall hope that you come back because Marty and I and others went through this in quite some detail. The lack of innovative, uh, innovation capacity of a totalitarian regime such as Russia and its concentration on essentially poaching technologies and trying to exploit them rather than ever facing competition to innov innovate has led the best of Russians because the, the distribution of intelligence is pretty much the same. It's Gaussian everywhere. The problem is how do you elevate intelligence? Uh, and that is culture. And that culture is lacking. The culture won't change. The rockets example you just brought forward, by the way, these were rocket scientists who came from different countries, three in particular, and they were taken away, just like uh, rocket scientists from Germany went also to the United States and from Austria, as well as from, by the way, what became later on the Czech Republic. It's a different life there. And what our friends have indicated, and Ryan can talk about pipelines all the time, and pilots I can agree on the other matter, meaning as to Halliburton and Schlumberger. Schlumberger has employed in Russia a significant amount of local personnel. Very few of them highly educated and, um, shall we say, leading engineers. Very few people actually of good scientific qualification amongst them who they would take on board. They have evacuated hundreds of their staff because Schlumberger is not stupid. And they are a very decent employer. And not only their French side, but also especially the Canadians who have been, you know, very much uh, at the forefront of the hydrocarbon um, extraction capacity services our friends have brought there. But the key thing is, it is predominant people from Western countries who've been do doing the hard graft. And I'll give you an anecdote from a facility operated service and to a large extent built by three German companies and one French company together, where an Italian supplier participated in the project financing. And they went and built it in between Omsk and its surrounding. And it was an important project. And at the moment in time, when the project was open to be shown to media and have Putin arrive personally there, all the foreign engineers and all the foreign operators were asked to take a vacation for three days so that they would not show up in media because they wanted to make sure that they could show, you know, the quality of Russian engineering and having happy Russians and happy um, Siberian locals having good jobs and doing a great job and having, a build, having built a great facility. This is not unusual. Mardi can tell you more stories about it. This is exactly what they do. The Potemkin village has not changed as a concept because the emptiness of culture does not produce innovation. They are looking at a very bleak future. Marty. Thank yeah, you for, uh, for the past 30 years, the Russians have not really developed anything new. Uh, it's especially well reflected in their military stuff because all their weapon systems and platforms are just uh, incremental or superficial modifications of whatever was developed during the Soviet times. And all the modern uh, technologies in the consumer sector are just uh, copy-paste copies of whatever they managed to get from the West. 
So someone here in this space brought up a very great analogy. Whatever the Russians have produced domestically is just an IKEA package. So they get all the components from the West and they just assemble it on on spot. Uh, that's why their their entire civilian uh, automotive sector is pretty much dead now. Uh, not because not only because everyone left, but because they simply cannot produce anything domestically. It's reflected in their new uh, safety standards for the new LADAs. Uh, they just rolled back uh, into the 80s. So the new LADAs don't have any safety airbags, no uh, pretense seatbelts, and so on and so forth. And the emission standards just are non-existent anymore. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of an innovation, they, they definitely do have well-educated people, but they simply don't stay because the, the system set up in a way where it doesn't uh, promote intelligence or uh, skill-based intelligence. Uh, and any anyone who's not uh, connected with the, those in power simply leave because there are no opportunities within the, within the country. Another great anecdote is the IT sector. As soon as the full-scale invasion of Ukraine started, the most of the IT specialists started leaving the country, and that really panicked uh, the authorities. They started pretty much cracking down on everyone who had the ports of entry and departure in Russia, uh, checking on people uh, whether they were IT specialists or not. So this is this is a pervasive problem. It was a problem. It, it was it was a problem back in the Soviet times, but not to such a great extent. Uh, but yeah, I absolutely agree. The the culture, the way the, the way the power system is set up, it simply does not uh, promote. Um, innovation uh yeah i would say that uh, there's a reason we just are having a debate between madi who is from kazakhstan a former soviet satellite and uh lucas who was born under ussr here in a here in a uh, western space not a russian space because uh that's where the opportunity has led everyone and people like freer societies with that uh and I know that's true for both of you gentlemen. It's one of the things I love about both of you. I would say our two next hands up are Luca, then Scandinavian, and then I, then we'll be close in time. So Luca, sir, welcome back. Hey guys. Yeah, just doubling down. There is no reason why even well-educated and smart people um, would be able to innovate and thrive in a corrupt um, top-down regime, right? Like innovation requires... Um, it's silly. I'm, I'm kind of a Silicon Valley guy, and you can kind of see like why like lots of the very innovative Silicon Valley companies, all of them except for Apple, actually, are kind of flat. The idea is it's it's the opposite of a top down, and we can talk about the corruption later. Uh, structure you need to be able to tell your boss that his idea is garbage and like prove it on the facts and come up with a better idea. That's how innovation is done and. Well, if you do that in a top-down uh, society, well, you might lose your job or be shoved in a you know corner of the <laughs> you know of the office. And if you do it um, in a corrupted society, um, perhaps even violent, corrupted, I mean, some worse things might happen to you. And then you're right. Like if you're really smart, you just leave. So yeah, it's just like the the ingredients are just not there. So I'm I'm not surprised. Okay. I have nothing to add. I mean, I, I'm in no way disputing uh, any of that. I would just not be perhaps mystic on on the uh, on the era of lot plane because uh, they are definitely cut off from 
U.S. and Western-made parts. So I think the safety of, of many of those airplanes, um, you know, is going to deteriorate quite quickly. Other than that, I, yeah, I don't. I, I think we're arguing about the degree of the decline of the Russian energy industry. Um, I may be more optimistic than, than some of you, but um, I think we're 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 in agreement on the direction. Thank you, uh, Scandinavian. Yeah, Mike, check. We can hear you, sir. Okay, I, I, uh, I'm touching upon the uh, discussion on innovation in Russia and uh, and also maybe a uh, comment to Axel about nuclear power. Um, I uh, I have to say that you know I, I'm a strong supporter of of, the, uh, of Ukraine with respect to the war and the invasion and all that. But I, I I'm a scientist by training and I I have been I, I, as a Finn I. I worked with Russians uh, in the past, and I have to say that, of course, the basic level scientific technological education in Russia is it's very good. It's really very good. Uh, I have some personal experiences in the sense that uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in the sort of mid-1990s, I, I worked in Moscow with a professor. He was a Jewish professor, uh, quite famous in his field. And I was astonished, even at that stage, that these guys were pulling out like uh, applied physics letters, which is one of the top-notch journals in, in this kind of incredibly bad condition. And um, so I would say that you know, you know, the, the Russian sort of scientific base is really quite good. But when it comes to the execution uh, and turning those innovations into sort of something tangible. I've always seen, and uh, and I think it's held that that especially when it comes to military and and sort of defense technology, Ukraine is the power base of the whole Soviet Union when it comes to um, you know all the heavy machinery, the jet engines, uh, all of many of the so the Soviet defense technology. All of the innovation base was in Ukraine. Uh, maybe some of the academic work was done in 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 Russia. Uh, uh, Ukraine has always been kind of the, uh, the Silicon Valley of, of so the Soviet Union, I would say, in some way. And uh, back to the industriousness and uh, innovative. Um, and and, and uh, yeah, the comment to Axel was that I am completely, completely with you uh, when it comes to this uh, modular nuclear power. I think that's really the way to go. I think you're right on that. So that's just my comment. And any questions, I'll be happy to ask. Uh, thank you, Scandinavian. I don't think Lucas has further response. Uh, and actually, you had something about projections you wanted to ask, Lucas, while we still have him for eight more minutes. Yeah, my question was actually, uh, Lucas, before, and, and you touched upon it a couple of times. What would be your current lead indicators? What are the indices? What are the uh, forwards, the futures? What are you looking at when um, gauging both how the energy prices determine political outcomes and what matters in regard to the war as such and how it is waged? Well, I'm not sure that there's a political indicator I would look at, but I do look at European forward electricity prices, send the market signal, um, and, and you can look those up on Bloomberg. Um, I would also look at credit default swaps for particular companies 
Um, and, and you can see that in the valuations, both the credit default swaps are elevated and the valuations are, are very low uh, of the equity, suggesting they're heading for some kind of restructuring. Um, Volkswagen in particular, the equity is priced as if they're heading into bankruptcy next year. Um, that's, that's why I mentioned that in particular. Um, otherwise, if you think they're not heading for bankruptcy, maybe it's an opportunity to make a fortune. But, you know, the, the, the stock is priced as if they're heading towards um, some kind of impairment. Um, and you can look at other, other indicators uh, for other companies, but it, most European industrial companies are in that space. Uh, if you look at the Polish stock market, right, it's at valuation levels, um, you know, that, that are that have not been seen in in decades, right? The, the, the Polish stock market is valued at six times um, current earnings, which again indicates some kind of systemic stress. Um, so th those are the kind of things I would look at, but most importantly, the forward electricity price. Yeah, I'm with you. It's the key indicator because Europe is industrial and therefore depends on energy prices being lower or at least uh, amenable. Thank you. Uh, Lucas, given the incredible impairments, does this interest any of you in an investment fashion? No. Is that the short answer? No. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, I can't handicap it. So, so the, an the answer is no. Yeah, that's, <laughs> let, let me add this. I, I think Lukas is right. Europe is not cheap just because these uh, indicators are indicating stress. Europe is at the brink of the abyss from which it needs to pull itself back before it, its relatively cheap valuations become an, attractive to investors again. Thank you. And for our final question, Luca. Yeah. Um, okay. So I heard a couple of like uh, um, interesting um, points here. For instance, like VW going into bankruptcy and industrial like being a distract valuation. So, what are we saying here, that the cause is high energy prices in Europe? Is, is that what it is? Well, I, I think the way I look at it is in the U.S., you know, the priorities are investors, number one, above everything else, consumers, close number two, and workers, distant number three. That's the, the, the list of priorities. You can never hurt an investor. My, my God, you cannot hurt any investor ever. Consumers, second, and investors, distant, distant third. Would, would anyone disagree with that? You broke up. I think you said in Europe, it's workers one, consumers two, workers are just, sorry, workers two, investors consumers, are third. Yeah, and investors, you know, who cares about investors anyway? You know, to the extent there's going to be pain, uh, the, the, the German government probably is not going to fire 300,000 Volkswagen workers and subcontractors in Germany. It's probably going to be the investors that will pay for it. Um, I'll give you an example from Poland. Um, in Poland, like in many European countries, most people have a variable rate mortgage. The Polish Central Bank has been raising interest rates aggressively. A month ago, the Polish government just passed a law saying that you can take up to eight, uh, you, can, you can miss up to eight payments. The banks cannot assess interest on those principal payments that are that are missed um, and they are not allowed to report that as a missed payment to credit rating agencies and they're just supposed to eat the loss 
which Moody's estimated about $5 billion, which would wipe out two years of banking profits, by the way. And there you go. The government just unilaterally said to consumers, don't pay your mortgage. The banks, you're not allowed to charge them anything or any extra interest. Investors in the banks, please eat it. Um, and auditors, and one of my brothers works for a big four, which is going to probably wipe out, as I said, about two years of profits in the industry. And that's the, the European attitude uh, to treating investors. Okay, I understand. But the trigger is still, in the case of industrials, in your opinion, still high energy prices. And then someone has to pay and you say Europe is going to be, oh, well, okay, investors are going to pay and they're going to eat up that, um, you know, that additional cost in some cases through restructuring of the debt and um, potential bankruptcy. That's right. And I'm certainly not saying that these companies are uninvestable at any price. I'm sure there is a price. Uh, but that, that's really outside of my, my expertise. Um, you know, I'm much more comfortable in the U.S., even though valuations are optical. Got it. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming, Lucas. It's now 5.30 Eastern Standard Time, which I believe you said is your cutoff. So really appreciate you coming onto the space, giving us your perspective and what you're, you're seeing, whether... Whether we all agree or not uh, isn't always the point, but we appreciate your diverse perspectives here and different people in the war. Uh, you're always welcome back. If you want to schedule any other time, uh, thank you very much. And if you have any closing remarks, we would love to hear. Um, I, I appreciate uh, everyone's questions. I thank you for, your list, for listening and um, happy to jump back on in, in a couple of weeks uh, when I'm back from vacation. And uh, hopefully, enjoy the beach. Great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Lucas. I also have to run. I have two kids who are calling me. So thank you very much, everyone. And uh, I say Slava Ukraini to our whole crowd and to everybody here who's listening from Ukraine. Hope you're safe as humanly possible. Aaron Slava. And with that, Ryan, let's move forward. Onward and upward. Yep. Uh, in just about a second. And in the meantime, Luca, do we have any final comments as to what happened now at the end of the night with Mario Draghi and what is the outlook with your wonderful president? It's a giant hot mess. Um, yeah, I know. It looks like we're going to go to elections. I mean, he'll, the silver lining is that if we go to elections, it'll be a sitting duck, but it'll still be um, a PM until the election comes. But what happens in the preparations for the elections, I have no... Nobody has any clue. Um Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I'll have to see if the, what the emerging narratives are, uh, whether they're going to start to talk about inflations and all of that. I mean, um, I'll let you know. I'll watch the Telejournale tomorrow and let you know. That is much appreciated, and thank you. I can see that we have a lot of uh, people who've sent us DMs in the meantime whilst we're on the call with uh, Lukash, but um, we have not been able to get all those questions resolved. I shall hope that we can make sure that we collect them the next time, discuss them with them. Joseph, Ryan, uh, I'll leave it to you for a little while. Uh, Thank quick, you, Axel. While we have Luca, I uh, wanted to mention that I noticed the Gladiator had returned to Rome, and I wondered if that had uh, impacted Italian politics in any way. When I was in Rome, everybody was talking about that. I think it's pretty cool. I don't know. Some people thought it was a tacky movie. I always liked the Gladiator. I don't know. 
Um, yeah, so, yeah, everybody was talking about that in Rome. I even went to walk to an area of Rome that uh, has a lot of um, the old uh, imperial villas. Um, apparently, there are people there that own a villa with, like, some tombs of, like, a Caesar in there. And they're just kind of, oh, yeah, that's my villa, and that's whatever, like something something like you know emperor and i'm like okay that's cool and then they were pointing oh yeah that villa down there they were like you know going to film like gladiator too so yeah not the politics but certainly the, everybody was talking about that in rome i just figured i'd add a little bit of levity to the discussion i don't know anybody who doesn't like that movie i think all of his other acting is trash but in that one instance he he gave a good performance um what if any news has there been with respect to HIMARS since I uh, rejoined the space this afternoon? I woke up to a couple of interesting videos of uh, failed Russian rocket launches, but uh, I've heard nothing about HIMARS other than the bridge attack, and I don't know if that was even uh, suspected to be HIMARS or not. I think there was some speculation in that regard. I know there have been some... Uh explosions in the Kherson Oblast area, like uh, not Kherson City itself, but the general area. Uh, there's the most recent strike reported is in uh, Skadovsk, uh, which is about 85 kilometers behind the front line. Uh, basically, a bunch of stuff's happening in Kherson, as far as I can tell. I'm not sure about news in other areas. Uh, yeah, not sure if anyone has any other information besides that. I'll, uh, I'll take a look, though. Uh, one thing I did want to add real quick is, uh, so uh, we had great guest speakers today. We had uh, Combat Medic Shum earlier. Uh, that was a great interview. Uh, Ferlane did a great job translating all of the questions and uh, what he was saying. Uh, I think it was a really interesting discussion. Uh, and, of course, we also had uh, finances uh, friend, uh, a hedge fund investor, Lukas Tomiki. Uh, we had a very interesting discussion with him about uh, energy markets. And uh, tomorrow, uh, so Thursday, July 21st, at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, we're going to have Alex uh, Kokcharov and uh, Sergej Sumleni. Uh, uh, and uh, Alex is a risk analyst uh, and kind of focuses on, you know, Eurasia, I guess. And uh, he's been on the show before. He's a great guest. Uh, we really look forward to him being there. And he'll be on together with uh, Sergej, who is a journalist and a political scientist and an uh, expert on Eastern Europe. So we really look forward to that uh, discussion with those guys. Uh, back to you, Ryan. Uh, somebody just tagged me. I think it might be High Mars O'Clock. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and share this one into the nest, at least briefly, so we can all be looking at the same thing. Uh, and then I would invite somebody uh, like John, if he's available, or I think it's a little early in the day for Portland. Uh, anybody that knows a little more about things that go boom, feel free to uh, take a look at the video. Whenever we ask what happened uh, lately, they've always uh, our, our listeners always send us uh, great videos of uh, ammo depots blowing up from high marks. It's great. Uh, Scandy, go ahead. Yeah, I have a, a question to the host, maybe. Uh, uh, given that you know, energy uh, occupies uh, a great deal of the discussion here, and it ha uh, has, of course, uh, a lot of sort of strategic importance to the to the matter here. So, have we had any um, oil traders in the space uh, so far? Uh, I have, in, in some of my circle of friends, I have some oil traders, and I've I've sort of 
surprised to sort of pursue that uh, some of them, which are they are not very active on Twitter and they tend to be quite private. Uh, but uh, but what this sort of oil trader uh, contribution to the space be of value? That's my question. Um, Scanny, we didn't have an oil trader yet uh, because they are, as you know, famously private. We've had people like Finance and myself who had spoken to friends of ours in Geneva in this business. And from time to time, we thought that um, their attitudes were a little bit, shall we say, callous. Um, and um, if not outright um, um, immoral, <laughs> if I may say. But uh, yeah. that doesn't mean that does not mean that we should not uh, listen to what they have to say about the market movements and gain some interest. I've had a, a few uh, discussions with people who come from two of the major major commodities traders, but none of them wanted to come on. So if you have someone who's willing to talk about the impact on oil markets, the impact of this, the sanctions on oil markets and the likes, the outlooks, we'd be delighted having them on. Well. I'm going through this private equity friend of mine who has this, uh, uh, and I've actually met these guys, and they are Finnish, Finnish guys uh, working out of London um, and, you know, work, working in the field for like 30 years. And I'm trying to pursue them that, you know, why don't you just set up like a completely anonymous uh, Twitter profile and, and join in and just, you know, pitch in your ideas. But I'm, I'm working on it, so, so, so I'll... I'll I'll keep it focused. I uh, second mm -hmm. Axel's remarks. We would uh, love to have them in if they would uh, be so inclined. I've been leaning on a, a friend and former colleague of mine who now works at one of the major service companies based down in Houston. But uh, for obvious reasons, he's been a little reluctant to uh, come on to a public forum and talk shop. Uh, I did see George joined us. Uh, George, if you had a question, I didn't uh, see your hand up. Hello. <laughs> hey, hey, how's it going? Good. Hey, pretty good. Good afternoon. Uh, I just looked at that video, but what was telling about it was the distance. It said 94 kilometers southwest of Kherson. And if this is truly a high Mars hit, then the rockets that have been given to Ukraine are a little bit more than the typical what you're hearing, 85 to 90 kilometer range. A straight line distance of 94 kilometers from Kherson City to Skadovsk would is, if that's 94, then the high Mars has to be at least 100 kilometers away. So that's something to mull about. And then the video looks like, obviously it's an ammo dump and you're seeing secondary explosions. Um, they look more like some kind of like, something that's like, flares or a thermite being exploded up in the air it's not rockets because you're not seeing any contrails uh from the rockets exploding but it's definitely some sort of ammunition maybe something of an incendiary type that they hit we have to highlight that the gimlers go beyond what is both for the basic gimler version um the specified range and there is an extended range version two of the gimlers yes there's there's the the British have been working on a lighter, on a on a lighter warhead that goes uh, at least 113 kilometers, and I know that that uh, they also have the precision, precision strike missile that goes 500 kilometers. But these are definitely starting to hit now, repeatedly the last couple of days. Minimum. I'm, I'm with you, kilometers. George. I'm with you, George, and uh, I expect to see the attackers in 
in theater soon. That would be great. We're all patiently waiting. Um, what would be the hallmark sign to look for uh, to indicate that we're seeing an attack versus a uh, Gimler's rocket? Just the distance? No, oh, significant, significantly bigger boom. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, that's what I wasn't certain about. Um, if they're hitting an ammo dump, the secondary explosions are going to mask the initial, would they not? Well, the, the initial explosion is going to be pretty, pretty significant. You're going to see a pretty significant mushroom cloud come out of there. Gotcha. Well, and I guess they would probably use the uh, Atacams on possibly a target that uh, is not an ammo depot, like a bridge or a uh, rail embankment. Well, you, so, so the, other, the other thing they could be hitting inside Crimea, you when you start seeing targets being hit inside Crimea, like, oh, you know, water processing plants and things like that, then you know that Atacams is there. Perfect. Yeah, and there's, uh, there's two garrisons they would probably like to take out, one close to Simferopol, plus an airfield, plus a helicopter base. Um, if you see them being lit up, you know it. Hey, I'm going to throw a question at you quickly, Axel. Um, it's the, the famous Portland question. What's on your Christmas list for attacking? Portland, <laughs> no, Portland I played on, on a longer list of these things. And I think we went through 12 railway yards and about six large... Um, perspective because obviously we do we're not inside so we do not know we only have get a good guessing capacity but six larger um maintenance facilities for armor and vehicles the russians have built up um over the years of their occupation um and plus two locations which seem to be yeah true build-up locations or outright garrisons at this point in time which definitely need to go and then uh, then we stopped because we ran out of time but <laughs> i'm quite sure that uh, the ukrainian armed forces will have a significantly more detailed better organized better researched and therefore more sensible list and i'm quite sure it will be much longer and i'm receiving messages of course that uh, why not actually help uh, the golden toilet palace also go up but then again uh, I wouldn't consider that necessarily a military target. Absolutely. Um, I I would argue that Russia, too, needs a museum of corruption, just like Ukraine has. No sense in uh, destroying it when it can be turned into a museum or maybe a nice resort for Ukrainians. Uh, I think we do have uh, some new speakers coming up, but uh, Candy, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up uh, on my comment previously regarding the uh, innovation capability of uh, Ukraine. So I'm not, uh, I would say, not so well-educated on the matter, <clears throat> but if anyone in the audience could enlighten me, because my, my impression is that uh, whatever high-tech was ever generated in the Soviet Union, it all came out of Ukraine, uh, whether it was radio frequency equipment or radars or uh, jet engines or whatever. Uh, so Rocket motors. Or rocket motors, or yeah, exactly. So, so I understand that the industrial base is still very much there, or at least has been before the war. So, so any Ukrainian voices in the in the crowd, I would very much appreciate any any sort of enlightenment on, on that. Uh, I don't think we have any uh, native Ukrainians on the panel at the moment. If there are some in 
the listeners gallery uh, feel free to request and we'll bring you up for the mic uh, if there are no immediate replies we will my, go my, to my 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 uh my in- my understanding is that for instance the Tobaski engines that went into the uh mig 31s and many of the mig um fighter jets actually came out of ukraine didn't really come from russia per se but uh, please correct me if i'm wrong uh i am probably the least capable person to speak in that regard i don't know much about the uh industrial or innovative capacity of ukraine beyond their uh, steel and agriculture exports uh, i do know that they made some high-end electronics equipment and some rocket motors that were used in russia and the former uh, soviet union but joseph if you could take over for a second i need to uh, mute my mic for a moment yeah no worries so again you're asking like what is the ca- capability of ukraine to produce like military stuff no it's, it's, it's like um, i have this uh as a Finn, I have this impression that uh, during the Soviet times, um, uh, you know, like in, in uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, they had pretty good universities. So the kind of the theoretical side of training was quite good in, in, in Soviet times and also in Russian times. But, but when it came to like uh, turning, you know, mathematical equations into actually functioning products, it was really Ukraine. Was, that was the industrial power base of the Soviet Union. And I, I, I believe that's still very much the case in the sense that, you know, they they have the kind of the, the wherewithal and, and the technical capability of, you know, high 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 precision machinery, um, you know, great software software developing capability and all that. And uh, and I think uh, I, I just want to get some reinforcement of this impression that I have. Which I don't think is false. You could comment on that. Yeah, I think you know I'm no expert, but I, I don't think you're wrong. I think you know, uh, as you said, you know, Russia leads in certain areas like mathematics and uh, you know other uh, maybe theoretical uh, applications like physics. Um, but when it came to actually designing stuff in the Soviet Union, uh, Ukraine was a, a major hub for that. Right when it came to designing aircraft, when it came to designing tanks, when it came to designing the navy. Um, and rockets um, for, you know, space rockets and uh, ballistic rockets and missiles. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right when it, it's obviously kind of a generalization, but I think that's maybe a, a, a fair generalization that um, Ukraine has good technical engineering capability. They, they're able to take the theoretical and turn it into the practical. And maybe the Russian strength is a little bit more in the theoretical, right? And um, I remember uh, there was a Ukrainian uh, speaker who came up once um, and he mentioned a story where uh, Russia once sort of got all the um, they stole the Russian intelligence managed to steal a, a computer chip and they were able to copy the lithography like perfectly. Right. Like every every detail, of the lithography. But it, the chip still didn't work because um, the material that they used to make the lithography on like wasn't the same, right? And so that's like maybe the like a metaphor for it, right? Like they there's an understanding of the intricate, you know, mathematics of how this thing is made, but then when it comes to the practical science of okay, I need the correct materials for this. I need material science. I need engineering. Um, that's where they maybe fall short. So, uh, Scandi, any follow up there? Well. I think what you're saying here is precisely the seed and the reason why when Ukraine wins this war, where there will be such a uh, incredible boom of 
economy and uh, development and uh, and just you know prosper- prosperity that will come through uh, from Ukraine because they are clearly industrious, hardworking, you know, brave people. They also and I, I I'm not uh, how would I say discrediting the theoretical understanding of Ukraine. I, there have been many uh, universities in, in uh, there are many universities in Ukraine with uh, a great deal of uh, sort of theoretical understanding. I, I uh, in my previous career, I, I actually interacted with some academics from Ukraine. I, I know that they have also, you know, very deep and good basic education. But but it's the industriousness and and this innovativeness uh, which, which I would really like to coin them as just you know the Silicon Valley of of Soviet Union, <laughs> and uh, for that reason, once this mess and this invasion is repelled, they they will be really very very successful. I have no doubt about it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Scandi. And I think that um, you know another issue, Camille Galiv actually, who finances always saying, I give that guy a follow, uh, Camille Kazani. Um, he just made a good post just about how, like, you know, in the Soviet Union, at the very least, uh, we can say other things about it. But the job of an engineer was pretty respected, right? It was a well-paying job. And, um, you know, the state made sure that these people were afforded a degree of respect in society. Um, in modern Russia, that's really not the case. I think in modern Ukraine, it is the case, right? They respect their engineers. They respect people who work hard in their society to design, you know, new things that are useful to uh, Ukraine. So I think that that's like uh, that pronounced difference in the, um, you know, uh, quality of life and respect of uh, their engineers, uh, you know, that makes a real difference. And I think as John's pointed out before, you know, when it comes to designing something as complex as a rocket or, you know, a drone or uh, a tank, like it's 90% of it isn't the facilities or the, um, you know, the, the, the buildings, it's, it's people able to, you know, how many smart people can you get in the room who know what they're doing and get them to work together to create uh, an end product uh, in design. And so that's, that's where Ukraine has its strength. I think you're absolutely right in the fields of IT and, uh, you know, just general design uh, that can't be beat. One just interesting design feature, this is a bit of a tangent, but um, that I think that even people in the U.S. military that I've talked to in this space are kind of uh, intrigued by is Ukraine seems to be mastering like remote control capability on a lot of their kit, right? So I think the Stugnas may be a great example of that. Um, They've got this remote controlled anti-tank weapon. It gives them a lot of flexibility to set it up and then move away. And that keeps the crew alive. That's like no, 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 uh, no small thing, right? To keep your crew alive. They've also got that capability on their uh, infantry fighting vehicle, the BTR, uh, so I think that's just a really good idea to have this remote control capability in infantry weapons, right? That seems like uh, you'd want that capability. You don't have to stand right next to your BTR to operate it. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of weapons that could use remote capabilities like that um, in the NATO arsenal. So that's like my little thought. Any uh, follow-up there, Scanning? Then we'll go to the hands. Yeah, yeah. And I, I want to say that uh, <clears throat> quite recently, uh, I would say within the last year before the invasion, I actually, I had some interactions with some uh, high-tech companies in in Russia. Uh, I mean, like really, really high-tech, and uh, and and those engineers were like top-notch. And um, between the lines, these guys were saying that you know we would like to relocate. Um, that you know we can't uh, sustain a business in in Russia because we can we can't tell what's going to happen politically. So 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 
you know, I, even though, you know, we've, we've seen this invasion army of Russia in, in Ukraine, the kind of behavior that they exhibit over there, I have been I have been interacting with some of the academics in, in Russia, but you know it's like eighty five percent of those guys are like you know they they can't believe understand and they are just moving out of the country. So they are they are losing their best brain by 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 both loans at the moment, and uh, that's a pretty dire situation for any nation where your best minds are uh, are leaving your country because of your politics. So, so you know, I, I think this um, discussion that was I, I think had we had this uh, was it yesterday or something about you know what's the fate of Russia after this defeat that they are in debt you know undoubtedly this uh, sort of galvanization uh, or whatever what's going to happen. But I would say that there will be only dumb people left in that Russia that will be split up because I I I, I know for. I would say I would know for a fact that all the smart people that have some brains and they have some soul, they are leaving. Yeah, if, you're, if you're smart enough to figure out you got a better life waiting for you, basically in any country in Europe, I, I think you're gone, right? Um, but, uh, Skane, we got a lot of hands. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah. uh, so, real quick, uh, I'm going to go, uh, I don't know the order. I'm going to go George, Nina, Leonard, Pickle. Uh, George, go ahead. Oh, yes. I, I just wanted to, to point out, like, I, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, we're hearing about all these big weapon systems that are being sent. But my concern is uh, some of the the more mundane stuff is uh, I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing that that's being sent, uh, like uh, cargo trucks, uh, body armor. You know, you're hearing that the Ukrainians are getting ready uh, 700,000 uh, person army, but I'm not hearing about, you know, though that type of kit. You know, how are you going to move the how are you going to move these soldiers and how are you going to protect them? Uh, body armor, uh, cargo trucks, uh, uh, small arms, weapons, uh, weapons that will uh, help in a fight. Like from what a lot of the videos I'm seeing and uh, just from reports on, on the ground, it looks right now. Now, I might be mistaken in this, but it looks right now that individual units it's hard for them to call, call in like an artillery strike or even a mortar team to take out like uh, a developing attack by the Russians. So I'm hoping that the people at the top are thinking about the people at the bottom, like, you know, the individual units, you know, you're being attacked by like a company size formation, having a couple of mortars to break up that attack before it even starts. You know, would be a godsend. Uh, you know, forty millimeter grenade launchers that uh, that can be sent out to individual units. They're not expensive. You know, the ammo for them uh, can even uh, there's a dual purpose round that can even take out a, a BMP. You know, um, if some of the territorial guard units had those, had more of that type of equipment, I think. Lose George. I believe so. George, I'm going to bump you down, but uh, feel free to come back up and uh, finish your point, George. Yeah, so as far as small arms, um, you know, I've definitely heard uh, some good things, uh, but of course, uh, enough is never enough when it comes to a big war like this, right? The more small arms we can get into Ukraine, uh, the larger uh, a military they can field. Um, I have, we have talked to soldiers uh, in the space before on the front lines who have M4 rifles, uh, who, you know, are using them. Um, We talked to Konstantin a little bit, and 
He mentioned that some mortars um, are readily available just because they aren't considered heavy weapons, even though, you know, a large mortar has almost the same explosive power as a 155 shell. It's just the range is a lot shorter, right? Um, but uh, so a fair number of those were delivered before that quote-unquote heavy weapons were being considered. Uh, however, uh, there are certain other mortar shells types that are are in more scarce. I believe uh, Ryan O'Leary, who's actually listening, maybe if he wants to comment on this, uh, feel free to come up, Ryan. But uh, if I remember correctly, you said there was a certain type of mortar shell that you were looking for uh, in, in the area that uh, were, were fairly scarce. So I think it's maybe a mixed bag. Uh, obviously, more small arms could be brought. Uh, when it comes to body armor, um, there's a real crunch for it. As far as I understand, there's just not enough body armor in the world to there's not like a pallet of it sitting around somewhere um, waiting to be delivered to ukraine that can just be sent um, it's being sourced by a variety of different places um, it's made by a lot of manufacturers and uh you know basically everyone's doing their best they can to bid on it and uh and, and round it up uh constantine has talked at length about kind of the the struggle that these each individual units going through you know they try to avoid bidding against each other for the same unit of body or the same lot of body armor and so forth um, so it's a big challenge. Uh, we encourage everyone to go to MarieAid.org. Uh, it's a great uh, resource uh, to provide non-lethal aid to Ukraine. It's run by uh, military who know how to get the right types of body armor um, directly to Ukraine. And uh, they're, they're completely volunteers. That means there's no overhead uh, for expenses, which means everything will go directly to getting the body armor, sending it to Ukraine. So uh, enough of that rant. Uh, Ryan, did you have anything you wanted to add uh, on the uh, uh, issue of small arms, body armor, that type of stuff? I was actually just trying to look up the figure uh, of units of body armor that have already been shipped by the U.S. military. I want to say it was like thirty or 70,000, but that seemed wildly high. Um, I know it is not an insignificant number. The issue is uh, Ukraine is trying to stand up hundreds of thousands of people in territorial defense forces and um, you know, local personnel that need to have body armor in case they come under shelling a rocket attack, as well as frontline forces. And um, again, there's not all body armors made the same. Um, the stuff that can uh, stop uh, high velocity rifle round is usually ceramic and it needs to be lightweight instead of some heavy, you know, plate steel armor. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not particularly cheap and it's not, uh, extremely abundant and what, what availability there is on the world market is, is actively being bought up, which is driving up prices for that as well. So, yeah. Thank you, Ryan. So we got the other Ryan here, Ryan O'Leary. Ryan's actually fighting in Ukraine right now, uh, as part of a, a, a foreign unit. They're under the administration of the foreign legion, but they're not the foreign legion. As far as I understand, that's, uh, Ryan has made that clear. Um, so, yeah, uh, he also his, his old account, I think, got uh, shut down by, by, by the man. So if you guys uh, please give Ryan a follow. Uh, he's a great account. And uh, we, we turn to him a lot for uh, firsthand experiences. So, Ryan, if there's anything you wanted to add here, uh, please, please go ahead. Yeah. So the mortar stuff, uh, sorry, I was reading the thing, but uh, mortar stuff, mainly 60s. They're, they're getting hard to come by. Um, we've looked into it a little bit and I'm not sure of the complete answer, but I know most of 60 millimeter like NATO style are made by like Rhine metal now. So I don't know if that's the issue. Uh, I know they've had a fairly large amount of contracts before this war, uh, the current invasion started. So I don't know if they're backed up on that previous contracts or what to fill those. Um, but yeah, mainly sixties, you can find 82s and one twenties. That's pretty prevalent still. So 
but the 60s are used a lot more because you know one person can carry the mortar and the the base plate and then you know you have each person carry two rounds there's you know 10 to 12 rounds in your squad so uh as for the body armor uh ceramics are probably the best they're lightweight and they stop you know uh most of it's level five type stuff or whatnot so it'll stop 762 5.45 and all that good stuff um I actually run around with steel plates with just a spall, anti-spall coating put on it. If I'm sitting in a trench, I usually run around a flak jacket only. Thanks, Ryan. And uh, do you have a do you have a minute, Ryan, to take a few questions from our listeners, or are you, you busy? No, I got a little bit of time. That's fine. Uh, perfect. So, yeah, let's uh, try to keep it focused on Ryan here just because he's on the ground. He's got a little bit of time. It's always good to hear from him. So if you guys have any questions for Ryan, please feel free to come on up. You can press the microphone button in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. You can press the heart icon in the center. And then on the far right, you can raise your hand to ask a question. So uh, I'll ask everyone, please uh, direct your questions. Ryan, maybe keep him a little brief, uh, be respectful of his time. Uh, Mr. Pickle, go ahead. Yeah, I was just uh, wanted to ask him how was his morale uh, going these days. The time Mars o'clock, I can answer that for Ryan. Yeah, I mean, the morale's good. It hasn't, I mean, it dropped for a while, but it's never really been significant. Um I know there were some TDF units, the territory defense guys that got pretty pissed off for a while, um, largely due to the logistics, um, like just being the logistics, at, you know, having issues like there's uh, like kinks in the network. So it's hard to get supplies certain times. Uh, but I think it's, it's definitely getting better with the HIMARS and the, uh, you know, new artilleries coming in. But they've also gotten better, at, like rotating troops out if they can get the troops out safe. So, you know, you're not seeing people sitting for 60 days in one spot anymore, really. So, um, but yeah, I'd say the morale is definitely better than it was a month ago. Uh, I, I have a quick follow-up question between the hands. Um, have you visited your favorite chicken tender? Uh, and if not, are you uh, moving around uh, actively again? I think you had just uh, transitioned back into Ukraine when we spoke a few weeks ago. Yeah, I've been moving all over. Um, I haven't visited her again. Um, we did get her connected with an engineering firm that could go out and do to fix a roof. I'd have to check on that tomorrow when I meet with the guy on some other stuff. Um, and then we have a team member that stays in good contact with her. So uh, she's doing good. Still has her chicken and her goat and everything. So <laughs> uh, as far as like moving around elsewhere, um, I'm actually mainly uh, this last week was uh, trying to get contacts for the Ministry of Agriculture. I finally got that. They're going to get some much needed supplies for so they can keep their offices running. So um, got that done. Now I'm just doing some other meetings and back to the front to get artillery. Gurney, go ahead. 